There you go. And now slowly lower yourself in. You can put your left foot down onto the bottom of the sub. There you go. And then this comes down. So, welcome to the limiting factor. This is a very small space. Welcome to Science Town, a podcast about the most unique research community on the planet. With every episode, we will bring you cutting-edge tech, science, and startup culture through the eyes of pioneering men and women. Their journeys cross disciplines and cross borders in the pursuit of world-changing science. Hello. I'm Nicholas DeMille. Welcome to episode 12 of Science Town. In February, the DSSV pressure drop anchored in the Red Sea, about 100 kilometers north of Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, to commence a series of dives in collaboration with KAUST researchers. On board were the crew of the Five Deeps expedition, as well as a one-of-a-kind submersible named the Limiting Factor. The man leading the operation, Victor Viscovo, is famous for traveling the greatest vertical distance possible without leaving Earth, having both summited Mount Everest and dove to the bottom of the Mariana Trench. We sailed out to speak with Viscovo and his crew to learn about what they've seen, what they're doing in the Red Sea, and where they're headed next. This is the limiting factor. This is the most advanced deep diving submersible ever. And you can see, I mean, the major components are, this is four days of oxygen supply. Right. Um, the oxygen system is all analog, nothing electronic. So we have two regulators. There's two of everything in here for redundancy purposes. Uh, this is the manipulator arm, how we control that. So it's an articulated arm. That That's Victor Viscovo. He's the creator, sponsor, and sub-pilot for the Five Deeps expedition. We climbed into the submersible with Victor to experience what it would be like to pilot the craft for up to 14 hours, a space Victor has become extremely familiar with. The light system is down here, 10 powerful lights. There are typically two of these displays in here that are what we call the graphical user interface that shows everything about the sub. Uh, the power, the uh, emergency conditions, the communications, everything is in these wonderful displays. And we have cameras mounted, three of them internally, one, two, and three, one behind. Right. And then this is uh, the weight release system and oxygen and CO2 monitors. Those are the two things that you have to watch, oxygen coming in, CO2 being scrubbed out. Mm -hmm. These are our emergency release systems in case we get entangled. We can actually jettison things from the sub, the manipulator, the thrusters, to make it as smooth as possible wow. to come up so we don't get entangled and get hurt that way. And then you have the electrical power system. This is all the power supply. Uh, left and a right-hand side, uh -huh. primary and a redundancy, and then all the switches that control all of our uh, toys, the cameras, the uh, the manipulator, the data collection services, um, the displays, whatever you need. And then the communications panel is over here, where we talk to the surface, control the volume, and all that. If we have an emergency, we have uh, oxygen bottles that will hold us uh, for you know about three or four minutes while we get on our self-contained breathing apparatus, which is inside these panels. Mm. We have a radio for surface communications. We have little heaters for when we go to really extreme depths and it mm. gets really cold. And um, 90 millimeters of titanium thick to protect the uh, people inside. And uh, that's about it. So simple, yet put together in a way that actually required an enormous amount of engineering because the entire 
system breathes. Mm -hmm. That is, when it goes down to intense pressure, everything shrinks just a little bit, and then it comes back into its original form when it comes back up. So uh, mechanical systems don't typically like that. Mm -hmm. So you have to design systems that allow for that reliably and repeatedly. Mm -hmm. So this can do uh, over 100 dives without any major overhaul, and this capsule itself is rated for thousands of dives to full ocean depth, which has never happened before. How do you even test something like this? That was a funny uh, evolution where this capsule was even designed to fit into the largest full ocean depth pressure chamber on the planet. And that's actually in St. Petersburg, Russia at the Krylov Institute. So when we lowered this capsule into that pressure chamber, there was only like a millimeter or two of clearance on each side. But it was the only way we could test it at 120% of full ocean depth. So we took it to Russia like on a weekend you know, we paid in cash for the testing services. We were actually kind of worried that we wouldn't get it back after they tested it. You know, the Russians would say like, oh, you have a very nice capsule. This is very interesting. Maybe we keep it for a while. And, uh, but that's not what happened. We got it in and out quickly, and it passed three tests to 120% of full ocean depth. So we were very confident when we went into the water that it would be fine. What's, what's been the trickiest thing that's, that's taken place while you've been down there? Well, the trickiest thing uh, is uh, when we were testing the submersible, we went down to 5,000 meters and we actually turned on the hydraulic power system and we actually had a little puff of smoke right here in between us. And that was unnerving when you're, you know, two hours from the surface. And we, you know, undid what we just did and it didn't get any worse, but we found out we had some improper uh, insulating uh, material for the wire right. and it overvolted. So, as you test a submersible, you know little things like that happen, but it definitely gets your uh, heart rate up a little bit. Um, did you test getting in this ball before you actually built it into a sub? Like, a... yeah, actually, before they even fully assembled the submersible, Triton, the manufacturer, they built a replica of what we're in right now. Oh, okay. uh, that was like a simulator, just like an airplane simulator. But I mean, it's identical to all of this, with a couple of small things missing. But it allowed me to actually train for all the emergencies, for all the normal operation for months mm -hmm. in my garage at home in Dallas. And they would, you know, patch in remotely using Wi-Fi, and they would run training scenarios for me. So when I when I actually got in the sub for the first time, everything felt just like my simulator, and I was able to operate with virtually no delay. What is it that you're doing, and why? from a mile-high perspective? Well, it all started, uh, wow, four years ago. I was, in many respects, looking for kind of a new challenge after being heavy into mountaineering for several decades. Yeah. And I was just shocked to discover that no human being had been to the bottom of four of our world's five oceans. Right. And yet we had the technology to do that because people had twice been at the bottom of the Challenger Deep in the Pacific. Right. And so my mind started turning around going, what would it take to do that? What technically are the roadblocks? And after, you know, several months of studying it, I realized that I had the resources and the technology existed to come together and actually build a system that could go to any point on the seafloor. So it was a fun challenge. Yeah. And uh, so I started pursuing that for the next three years. And then we actually bought a U.S. Navy ship, refitted it, put the submarine on the back of it. And in many respects, it was a technical challenge that I wanted to face. Yeah. And over the 10 months of the Five Deeps expedition, we did go to the bottom of all five of the world's oceans and went down to the bottom of the Challenger Deep repeatedly. Right. And so now that we've technically proven this technology, now it's about exploiting it. 
it's now about taking the submarine to all these interesting places in the world that have never been visited by a human being. Yeah. Whether they're in the Mediterranean or the Red Sea where we are now, the Indian Ocean, or back to the Challenger Deep and the Western Pacific. Yeah. Um, mountaineering to uh, submarine captain slash uh, oceanic researcher doesn't seem like a, a, a straight jump. So how, how does that happen for you? I know yeah. I know you have Navy experience, but uh, it seems like a very different but hostile uh, environment. Yeah, they're, they're different, but they rhyme a lot is the way <laughs> I like to say it, where they all have technical challenges. They all have mental challenges, definitely. A little bit more physical in mountain climbing than in submarine. Right. Uh, but what it's made up for is just engineering and technical challenges that you have to overcome. Right. And just organizational. This is an organization with over 100 people worldwide that are trying to contribute to put all these things together. And I was in the Navy for 20 years, so I do have a connection to the sea. And right. I thought there was a nice symmetry from spending so much of my life going up to going down. Right. And uh, I think if you look at the history of a lot of uh, explorers, a lot of them did many different things. They didn't just do the one thing that they're known for, but they were also either pilots or, yeah. you know, jungle uh, explorers or any number of things. We're, you know, kind of impatient. We want to do many things. Right. How do you get people to imagine that this is possible? I mean, I know, I know that you said it was technically possible. It had been done uh, less than a handful of times. But how do you get people... Uh, to all move in the same direction and imagine that this type of thing is is doable. Well, it wasn't that hard actually to get people <laughs> excited about it because, uh, for example, Triton submarines that built the limiting factor, my yeah. deep diving submersible, they had been toying with this idea for maybe a decade. They just didn't have an individual that was willing to commit the resources to actually engineer and build it and then dive it. I see. So the imagination was <clears throat> there and people wanted to pursue it. It just required uh, the money mm -hmm. and the will for someone to come along and want to do it. No government had really ever tried to do this except back in the 60s with the Trieste, for example, or James Cameron in 2012 with his submersible that only went down once in the Challenger Deep. Right. But uh, Richard Branson tried to do the five, what he called the five dives, but they, I think, went too far out on the technological curve and they could not get their submersible really to work. Ah, and so okay. we learned from that and the others to actually build a submersible that was reliable and could get it done. So when you get down there, um, what are some of the most surprising things that you've encountered? I know that it's been out in the press a bit that there's been a bit of plastic and, and some other things, but, but mm -hmm. what are you finding when you get down there? It's a combination. Uh, the major axes are biological, you know, okay. finding creatures. We found over 30 new species in just 10 months on our huh. expedition because we're going places that no one has ever gone to before. Yeah. And especially in the ultra deep areas, these are isolated areas that have evolutionarily been on their own for a while so you're mm. going to get divergence which is interesting yeah then there's the mapping and the geology you know where we have the most powerful sonar of any civilian ship in the world and we're able to map things that no one could map before we mapped an area the size greater than the country of italy in 10 months that had never been seen before i have to find 130 names for things of things that we found on the seafloor features right. that i have the right to name because we found them and directly visited them or otherwise right. and then there's of course unfortunately the uh, human contamination angle and not everywhere, but uh, in most places that we've dived, we've actually seen evidence of human contamination. We just came from the Calypso Deep, the deepest point in the Mediterranean, and it was it was pretty bad. Mm -hmm. It's probably the worst I've seen where almost wherever we went, we saw plastic or hoses or forks or any number of things on the seafloor. And it just reinforces my own belief that uh, 
you know, cleanup efforts are well-intentioned and good, but we just have to prevent the stuff from ever getting in the ocean because yeah. once it's in the ocean, it is virtually impossible to get out. You end up spending six, eight hours at a time in this little space. Thirteen. Thirteen, okay. <laughs> yeah, uh, as much right. as that. Well, and so that gets to my question. It's like, uh, you know, you, you end up taking uh, some pretty famous people down, so you're stuck in a sub with them for long periods of time. How do you deal with um, you know, piloting and, and working with someone in a, in a fairly, uh, what could be a fairly uh, intense situation that you've never met before? Yeah, uh, I wouldn't say <laughs> I'm stuck with these people. I'm actually uh, very much looking forward to doing it. Right, uh, right. But yeah, it's a confined space. It's similar to being in the cockpit of a business jet. That's the okay. best analogy that I have. And you know, you can spend many hours with people like that. But you know, you get to know them. And at the end of the day, what I realized, whether it's you know a scientist or one of my own technicians or you know a head of state like Prince Albert was, yeah, the people are pretty much people. Yeah. And uh, I'll never forget when uh, I closed the hatch on the submersible and we were about to launch a uh, Prince. Albert uh, quietly turned to me and he said, in here, you can call me Albert. What What's the, the future of this? So you guys are going to spend a while in the Red Sea and dive uh, and do some things. And then and then where from here? Yeah, we actually have done the research and we're pretty sure that no human being has ever been to the bottom of the Red Sea. So we're hoping to do that in conjunction with the Saudis here and go down to the bottom of what's called the Suwakin Deep, which is the deepest point in the Red Sea, which is about 3,000 meters. has an amazing brine lake at the bottom of it. So you actually have a lake in the ocean that we're going right. to go see. We already saw one of those at the Kerbet Deep. After this, we go into the Indian Ocean, where we're going to partner with the Nekton organization to dive a whole bunch of seamounts mm -hmm. and dive in what's called the Midnight Zone, between about 1,000 and 4,000 meters. Then the ship is going to head back to the Pacific. We're hoping to do the deepest wreck dives in history off the coast of the Philippines. It's the 75th anniversary of the end of the war in the Pacific, and there are some American warships that are down there that have never been visited by man or even identified. Then we're going to continue our science mission to the Yap and Palau trenches. The, we're going to go back to the Challenger Deep and maybe you know eight or nine times and survey it, and then to the Northern Mariana Trench and dive those areas that have never been dived before as well. I mean, the, the whole ocean is like open up to us because yeah. no one's been to any of these places ever, yeah. and we have a system that can do that. Amazing. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. Science Town, brought to you by Kaust. The Red Sea is a mid-ocean ridge, so it's a spreading environment. That's Froike van der Zwan. Froike van der Zwan. And I'm an assistant professor here at Kaust. I spoke with her back in the university studios after her research dive with Victor to one of the deepest points in the Red Sea. Typically in other oceans, the spreading environments are between four and 6,000 meters depth. Okay, so quite a bit deeper. Uh, so yeah. they can be deeper, and that is one of the effects of that it's a very young ocean here. Um, because with larger spreading, your plate cools down and it sinks, so it becomes deeper. And the submarine is built to go to really to the very deepest points, which is mostly where plates would go down right. uh, subduction zones. So you're descending, uh, you start to see, I suppose, uh, that the bottom is coming up, and then you catch the first sight of it. Um, is it that you have lights out in a broad sense, and so you're seeing a, basically a valley underwater, or is it much more narrow in the sense that you just see the bit, bit that you're going to land on? It's really narrow. Okay. Getting good lights under the ocean or in the ocean is really difficult, also because of your batteries and things. So what you see is really a 
relatively narrow field. There are these viewports in there, so you see a little bit more than with the camera at least. Um, but I think you need to be five meters or so from the bottom in order to really see something. Oh, wow. So what I saw the, when I came down was lots of rocks, which in my case is really exciting already. <laughs> uh, but in some cases, it's you can't. You have some cameras to the side, to the back, but it's really difficult to see yeah. around. Um, but compared to an ROV video or so, it makes such a difference because yeah. in the video you always have the two D view and it's really narrow. Right. And in the submarine, you can look to the one one uh, window or to the other. Right. You can look down a little bit forward. You can have a look at the camera. And you see it in 3D, and that makes a lot of difference. So what did you see that was of interest to you uh, when you got down there? So when we went down there, we decided to go to one of the volcanoes. So there are many volcanoes in the Red Sea. They're relatively small. And one of the questions is, how are they built? How There are some videos. People more or less know how they look like, but... Um, yeah, the, the details and so are not really well known. Is it a volcano in the traditional sense that there's a bit of a, what um, you know, sort of a chamber, a sunken chamber and sort of a mounded up area that you could go inside or that you could explore? So it's, it's not the typical cone-like feature that you know when you think about a volcano. Right. They're actually called flat-top volcanoes. Okay. So they're really flat on the top. And some of them have a crater, others don't. So in the middle, there's often, yeah, something happened there. It's also not entirely clear why there is a crater sometimes or not. So we chose one with a crater and we actually descended in the crater and then wow. went up on the flat part. Yeah. And then uh, the idea was to go into another volcano right next to it down again. Um, but that was then, um, we couldn't continue at some point, so we went up from there. So you get down into this volcano. That's got to be an extra level of excitement and interest. What do you find inside that volcano? And how big a volcano are we talking about? I mean, is um, this the sizes of these things are a few hundred meters to a kilometer, I think. So massive. Yeah, so we're talking about bigger sizes. So our... What you can do with a submarine in terms of distance is also a little bit limited. Sure. Actually, this one is relatively fast. It can go up to two or three knots, but the faster you go, the less you see. And especially if you want to get good video material in the end, you better have less distance and go a bit slower. So I think we went half to one kilometer distance, I which see. was more or less the size of the volcano. Laterally. In yeah, terms laterally. Of, okay. And then we went up about 100 meters. And part of it was sort of gentle going upwards. And part of it was just a really steep slope, uh, steep wall, basically. So we had a 500 meter wall where we went upwards. And especially to pilot that is was also for them quite a challenge because so far they usually have been in sedimented areas where everything is smooth and nice and now we send them into this very irregular rocky material what did you find in terms of 
rocks and I'm also curious how you do sampling. So is it a lot of visual inspection? Are you doing further and more close in mapping um, using you know, auditory means? Like w what are you doing to test and, and understand that area better? So there, as a rock chemist, I ideally would have samples okay. to work on. That is my main work. With the submarine, it was really difficult to sample. Can you grab, um, like, does it have a So it has a so? manipulator arm, similar as on an ROV. But you need to have, uh, yeah, you need to get it really stable in order to grab a sample. And we actually tried to sample some of the rocks. But another issue was that the rocks were just too big for the arm. Oh, so they were really huge blocks and you try to get the smaller sample but even the smaller ones there was one in in the arm that we grabbed and it just fell out again oh. because that was really difficult so but in general collecting rocks you probably need different methods so the main advantage of the submarine now was really the visual thing it has several hd cameras outside of the submarine that film everything and we will analyze this material and see what we can get out of that in terms where are rich rocks occurring and then combine that with earlier studies or following up studies where we can actually get the rocks with other methods right. and uh, start to compare those things. So you're down there in this sub and you're thinking to yourself, we've got to get one of these. <laughs> yes, and there were really pretty rocks and really good examples. Right. And I've done a lot of trying to collect rock samples with the earlier project and it's so difficult in the Red Sea and sometimes you only get up one little rock and I was down there and they were all laying in front of me and I was thinking why do we never get these rocks up? very special to yeah. be there to finally see that what I've basically been studying for the last 10 years right. <laughs> of my life <laughs> so that was you you when you go on land you go onto a volcano you grab your sample with your hands and exactly. this is yeah much more difficult but it was really yeah special to see how it actually look and how it really is down there so you spend how many hours below the water uh, before you come back up full circle back to the surface? So it was about an hour down. Okay. In my case, an hour up. And we spent about one and a half hours on the bottom in, in my case. So that was four and a half hours. Um, some of the other dives, also depending on when we arrived in the place, how much time did we have. Um, so I think they went up to six hours, basically. Um, one of the issues with this, with the Red Sea, basically, was that the submarine 
is planned to go to oceans which really get cold. And here it doesn't get cold. So it was heating up. We started with 30 degrees in the submarine and ended up with 38 degrees. And one of the other dives, they had 40 degrees when they came up. So that was a challenge on its own. Right. To have the hot temperatures. And you are probably the first woman to do that. Considering the situation <laughs> several years ago, at least the first woman to go deeper. Yeah. So with the Germans, we had the women too, but that was less than 400 exactly. meters. Yes. Yeah. Well, congratulations. That's, yes. Uh, <laughs> Thank that's you. Exciting. <laughs> <laughs> what's um, and this is what I'm hunting around at. So, so what's the the future outlook for you? What are, what are you excited about um, thinking about in, in in the future to do? So I'm really excited to have a closer look at all the video material to get working that with that and um, get as much out of it as possible, um, share the experience and also to get more science done on the Red Sea because it's still a very unexplored area and with, with things like this you can really bring out more knowledge and show also other countries, other places that this is really a special place to work on. Yeah. Make this relatable. Uh, this is, this will be my last question. Make this relatable, um, to our larger struggle as a, a species. What, what, uh, what things are we going to learn? What's the, the sort of cosmic view of, uh, understanding, uh, the deepest points in the ocean, which, which, uh, we have very, very little understanding, it, uh, seemingly, from, from hearing Victor talk about it. So what's the, what's the big picture takeaway from deep sea exploration, particularly from a geological standpoint? So yes, we know, we know some parts of it. There's a lot we don't know. And I think the oceans are a really pa big part of our life. It will become also more important in the coming generations as it delivers us resources in terms of food, water, um, but also metals. So there's more and more people looking into, at some point, mining the ocean. So there is a lot to gain from the ocean. There's also a lot to protect in the ocean. At the moment, especially from a geological point of view, we don't understand everything going on there. We don't know why the ocean is formed, and that are some very basic questions, but are also very interesting questions to get a better understanding in general on yeah, the world we live on. Wow. So we, we do actually don't have a great sense for why these oceans form the way that they did. Huh? Well, we have a, a general, we have plate tectonics, yeah. which is the bigger picture when it's about the details why does a continent break up and form an ocean that is there are some models but it's difficult to study and that is something that especially in the red sea can be studied in much more detail and so far it was always very difficult to do any studies in the red sea and i hope we can open up that a bit wonderful thank you for speaking with us we really appreciate it you're welcome sure. <laughs>
tell me why you guys are traveling around the world diving in some of the most dangerous and, and uh, unexplored places. Uh, we're doing it for multiple reasons. One, one is uh, we have the technology to do it. Yeah. And I think we are, we are a bunch of people who have that mentality that if it's somewhere difficult, let's do it. Right. Uh, let's not do it the way everyone else does it. Right. That's just the way we roll. That's Dr. Alan Jameson, a senior lecturer in deep sea biology at Newcastle University and the chief scientist aboard the Five Deeps expedition. Uh, scientifically, there are huge sort of white areas in what we understand of the ocean. So my, my own personal scientific interests have always been anything deeper than 6,000 metres. So when the, the sub-project came along, yeah. I couldn't say no. Exactly. Uh, we've been doing that for about 15 years now. So, you know, I always think of the ocean as being one big, huge body of water. It's not shallow versus deep or, right. or coastal versus open ocean. You know, someone's got to do the deep end. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, we'll never really understand it. So, so I've spent the last 15 years exploring as many deep areas as possible and trying to work out what's what are things that happen in, in, on a sort of local scale and what are things that happen on a global scale. So then we can say for some, with some certainty that we understand how things change as you go deeper. So what is that? What is different about people's everyday experience of the ocean and when you're diving so deeply? How does, how does that change? Well, bizarrely, there's a really strange mentality with human beings in, in that they always think uh, anything that's deep is out of sight, out of mind. Why, do we, why should we care about the deep sea? But yeah. then you, you, you look at planet Earth. The, if you take the top of Mount Everest to the bottom of Mariana, the average is 4,000 meters underwater. Right. The average, right? So most of planet Earth is deep sea. Right. To say, well, what? who cares about the deep sea? You're saying, well, who cares about 65% of planet Earth? Exactly. It's doing something. These are not just random animals that are just alive because they've never become extinct yet. They do yes. stuff. They're, it's ecology. They're, they're, they're recycling carbon. They're moving things around and so on and so on. So... Uh, and, and so what I meant was more uh, so that listeners, to take people down there. What, what is down there? What's different about it? Not who cares? What's different? <laughs> no, well, well this, is, this is where I'm going with it. I mean, yeah. the, 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 it's, what you see is, is the same types of, of things. I just, it, they're all animals doing animal stuff. They're yeah. all doing something. Yeah. To go down in the submarine and, and move around and actually explore it more, is it opens up a whole new avenue of research because mm -hmm. until now we tend to have static cameras that go down and sit and, and they do stuff but to actually be able to to move around and see it with your own eyes you get a much better perspective on the lay of the land the types of habitats there are the types of species that live on those habitats and you right. quite often find that the rules are the same mm -hmm. as they are in more familiar environments like coastal stuff you mm -hmm. see lots of sea lilies and on hard substrates you see sea cucumbers and soft substrates it's there's not this weird dark evil realm that lies below our happy happy oceans you know it, it's just the same it, 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 i think people just have difficulty dealing with the concept of death right, uh, right. and hopefully with with the submarine you have that human element there's people in it yeah and the more we do it the, the less weirder it gets it's not something some some crazy guys you only ever see on tv these are just normal everyday people diving to the deepest depths and making it look easy. Right. You know, it's not, but it looks easy. Right.
So, so what does, from a scientific perspective, each of the dives involve? What are you guys looking for? What have you found up till now? So the really deep dives, what we're looking for is how the habitats change. Mm -hmm. Once you've got the lay of the land, once we've mapped it acoustically, you know mm -hmm. what it kind of looks like. Once you see it and record it on video, you get an idea of, of, of the types of habitats. Then you're looking at uh, how many species there are, what those species are doing, mm -hmm. what kind of abundance, what the, and then you know we, we use some of the, the lander technology to, to sample some of the animals. So mm -hmm. then we have uh, genetic studies to so look how connected they are. Mm -hmm. Uh, one of the most striking things with the, in terms of human elements is how much litter we find, which is quite quite sad. Yeah. Uh, even at some of the most extreme depths, even even yesterday in the Red Sea, we saw a, a seven-up can just lying on the seafloor. <laughs> right. Uh, so we, 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 we nothing gets wasted. Every mm -hmm. single observation, everything on those on those uh, films will get used, will get published, and we'll we'll put that out there and we'll put it out there quickly mm -hmm. to try and again to try and catch up for lost time. Yeah, these brine pools that you guys encounter. Mm -hmm. um, so what what are uh, what are the particularities of them? Do you guys intend to dive in them? Do you sample them? What's what's going on with them in particular? The brine pools are. Brown pools are always weird, yeah. <laughs> and they're not something you get very often. You get them in the Gulf of Mexico, Mediterranean, and mm -hmm. the Red Sea ones are particularly interesting. So, again, what we're looking at is is the brine itself, uh, which is super super salty. Yeah. Uh, the sub can't even penetrate it; it's it's so dense that you you couldn't dive it if you wanted to. Yeah. Uh, so what we do is we we're uh, transecting along the shoreline because these brine pools are so dense that they actually look like lakes. Right. You can actually look at it, and it ripples and moves like a lake underwater. Right. So we filmed a lot along the shoreline, and we film a lot of the uh, steep vertical walls either side of it. So we're mm -hmm. looking for things like vents, lots of geological interpretations, uh, looking for what species live on these vents. Mm -hmm. uh, and because they're so geologically mad, for want of a better word, yeah. you get a lot of really interesting species that they are not normal. They don't, they're, not, they're not species that are deriving their energy from uh, sunlit, detritus on the surface which is sunk down they're actually yeah. deriving energy from chemicals and minerals coming out of the seafloor ah, okay. so we call them chemosynthetic as mm. opposed to photosynthetic mm -hmm. so there are a whole bunch of animals that are too happy just living on the seafloor just sucking out the methane from the seafloor and then genetically they are completely bizarre there are people looking at these two as analogies for life on other planets yeah. you know and, and it's, everything about brown pools is, is, is bizarre and they're absolutely stunningly beautiful as well yeah. from a from sitting in a submarine and seeing this stuff for the first time, you just you, there is a moment of like, wow, that is super cool. <laughs> so. Do you ever dive down with him? Is is that uh, something that you do, or are you purely on the surface? Uh, no, I was in the sub just two are? days ago. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I did the dive with uh, with Victor, and and I've also done the Mariana Trench, the Puerto Rico Trench, wow, the Malloy deep in the Arctic, right. the Java Trench. Uh, yeah, so I get to go down. Um, what's the future of this then? So you guys uh, spend some weeks here, I think, in in the Red Sea. So so then from there, where? Uh, the next job we have is a contract with another organisation mm -hmm. who want to dive, do a lot of shallow water diving in the Seychelles and the, the Maldives. Mm -hmm. And then I'll rejoin again, hopefully in the Philippines. There's a big trench off the Philippines, 10,000 meters. No one's been in that. No one's really sampled that since 1952. Wow. So I'm really looking forward to that. And then we're going to go across to the Palau and Yap trenches. Mm -hmm. They're about eight and 9,000 meters deep. Then we're going to do a really big last uh, month or so, I guess, on the Mariana Trench. There's still a lot of work to be done in Mariana. So we're going to take a lot, uh, a lot of interesting people down. Yeah. 
and we're going to dive at the deepest point, the second deepest point, third deepest point, all the way up to Saipan. Right. Uh, after that, I'm not so sure what's going to happen. We're, we're just concentrating on, on the, the matter at hand right now. What do you hope is the takeaway um, from all of this, uh, all this diving, all of this uh, exploration? Scientifically, there's lots of interesting things that we want to get away, but mm-hmm. I think the general populace probably won't be too interested in that. What I'd like to see is as much of the film footage and, and images of what the deepest parts of the ocean look like and mm. trying to normalise it, mm. to try and get people away from thinking it's some deep, dark, weird place with aliens of the deep and monsters and all the rest of it and show that you know if people are going to care about the oceans, they need mm. to understand that it's... It's, it's beautiful, it's normal, it's just because it's deep doesn't make it different. Uh, and historically, there hasn't been a lot of footage. Yeah. You know, you go online right now and say, what does the bottom of the Mariana Trench look like? There's very, very little information out there. And, and you know, now we've got four HD cameras on the outside of the sub. We're bringing back, you know, hundreds of gigabytes worth of film footage. And I just want to show the world and, 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 and get that out there. Thanks for speaking with us. That's okay, thank you very Best much. Best of luck. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks to everyone who spoke to us for this episode. Thanks to the Kaus Core Labs for coordinating this extraordinary visit. And most of all, thanks to the team at Caledon Oceanic for having us aboard for such an up-close and personal tour. Science Town is produced by Mark Bowes and Alex Arias. I'm Nicholas DeMille. Until next time, thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of King Abdullah University of Science and Technology, also known as KAUST. You can find us on all major social channels, wherever you get your podcasts, and at sciencetown.kaust.edu.sa.